You're listening to That'll Preach. Uh, we are going to be having an interview today that I think you're really going to like. We don't have Paul here with us again, so it's just going to be uh, me, but uh, hopefully that's okay because I think our guest uh, is going to wow us with some incredible insights. But uh, we have Bishop Neil Labar of the ACNA, and uh, and he is uh, here gracing us with his presence, talking about life. And this is really part of a, a series that we want to do, uh, where we kind of capture the insights and reflections of uh, pastors and preachers of the gospel and, and ministers who have uh, done ministry for a long time and have had, uh, have gone through trials, have gone through ups and downs, and have endured it all and remained faithful. And just hearing them, hearing their insights, their testimony. And uh, maybe even some advice for the young whippersnappers out there. But uh, it's a really great uh, opportunity here. And I'm, I'm grateful that you're joining us. Thank uh, you. It's Bishop great Neal. to be here. So I want to just cut to the chase. I mean, this is a big weekend for you. Right. We've got the, the, <laughs> the coronation of the next, uh, of the next bishop. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? How are you feeling? Well, we don't really crown bishops, uh, we, but we do consecrate them. So it's the consecration of the next bishop. And I'm, uh, some, I, I had a wonderful experience on Sunday of a 12-year-old girl that I had just confirmed. Uh, and she came up to me afterwards and said, well, tell me, how are you really feeling? And it was just so sweet on her part to be thinking about me in the context of all of that, uh, because it was my last parish visit as the bishop of the diocese. Um, and I think I'm feeling two things. I, I think on one hand, uh, on a relational level, I really have felt close to the congregations and the clergy. And no matter what happens going forward, I'm not going to have that level of contact and that level of involvement with them. And I will miss that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's a stressful job. Uh, leading churches, uh, like leading a church, has its built-in uh, struggles. Um, and some of those I will not miss at all. I will hopefully not be as involved in clergy discipline as I was when I was the bishop of a diocese, so that will be a relief. I'm sort of wrapping things up this week of a couple of discipline cases so that I'm not handing them on to my successor. Uh, I'm excited too because Alex Farmer, who will be the next bishop, has been a friend of mine for decades and is known to many of us in the diocese, so uh, he's not coming in from the outside. He's well known. He's been working with us for a long time. And uh, that was true of the other candidate as well. But um, uh, it, it feels like a smooth handoff. So that part uh, makes me very grateful to the Lord for, for real mercy, because it is not always the case that things go smoothly. Well, it sounds like uh, <laughs> some of the things that you miss are the personal interactions and, and getting to see all the different uh, churches in your diocese, but yep. some of the other stuff, the discipline stuff, the uh, <laughs> dealing with people's problems constantly, maybe, maybe that one you can uh, watch sail off <laughs> as <laughs> you least, go. To some degree, yes, please. <laughs> but uh, so being a bishop, I mean, you've got a lot of responsibilities. You're obviously, you've got oversight over a bunch of different churches. And uh, how long, I mean, you've been a bishop for how long? Uh, about 12 and a half years. 12 and a half years. Well, you didn't start off as a bishop. No, no, right? no. I was a, I was a, I became a deacon, which is our first level of ordination. Um, not like a Baptist deacon; it's a it's a it's a clergy position. Um, 
1978 and was in that role for a year. That's sort of the normal amount of time if you're going to go on to be a priest or a presbyter. Um, uh, and I, so that was in 79. So I've been in that role as clergy since uh, 1978 and 79. And at that point, you were in the Episcopal Church? Yeah, I, I came to the Episcopal Church. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I came to faith through a ministry to kids in boarding schools and day schools, private schools, uh, that began in New England and has spread out across the country now. But it was the early days. Um, and uh, it was a ministry that was catalyzed when a young man heard Billy Graham on the radio in his prep school room, became a believer, connected with Christians when he got to college and discovered through the university fellowship there that um, John Stott, an Englishman uh, writer and preacher, um, had a similar background of coming to faith when he was in boarding school through a ministry in England. So the the young man decided he needed to bring that ministry here. His name was Peter Moore. I mean, he just died a couple of years ago. Um, and so Peter grounded us from friends with similar uh, private school backgrounds and said, we need to start a ministry to reach into private schools. And the result of that is a few years into that ministry being in existence in the States, um, a new chaplain came to my boarding school in senior year. He and his wife brought the gospel to me. So uh, it was a, um, a direct uh, result of, of a missionary, a cross-cultural missionary effort because the boarding schools, particularly in New England and the day schools as well, are really another world altogether. Where, where in New England were you? I was, uh, I grew up in Westport, Connecticut, but the school was in Windsor, Connecticut. It's a Loomis school. It's now the Loomis Chafee School because it's gone co-ed with its sister school. Um, uh, and, um, and they just, he preached the gospel and they also lived at my end of my hall in my dormitory. So they were our dorm parents and were very open and welcoming and, and lots of conversations and lots of sharing with me. And the Lord reached me over a matter of months. Like C.S. Lewis, uh, I first became a theist through them. Uh, it took me about a month to figure out where the gospel and where Jesus fit into the into the picture. Um, but that took several months. I did grow up in the Episcopal Church, and maybe I heard the gospel and just didn't catch it. Uh, but it was a it was a time in the life of most mainline churches where they were taking your faith for granted, and the idea of discipling somebody into the faith was just not part of the um, picture, except for perhaps Sunday school lessons and things like that. So, so was there a period of time? I mean, you you grew up in the Episcopal Church. Was there a period of time where you would have said, "I, I don't really need to." Believe this? Or? Yeah. When I got to boarding school, I didn't have a clear picture of the gospel. I had a, I, I would call myself an agnostic, and that was really the atmosphere of, of my school as well. It was not a Christian school, and it was just the in thing to believe that different people had different opinions about religion. But I didn't have a strong one. I had no real faith that I could point to, and I certainly didn't know uh, Jesus in any kind of discernible personal way and so when this uh, couple came in they were just were they doing bible studies they were just inviting you they in were doing all sorts you? of things first yeah. of all he was preaching in chapel we did have a daily and a sunday chapel 
and it was just sort of a mandatory uh, thing that was built into a lot of schools' lives, whether they were solidly Christian or not. Um, so his preaching was intriguing, and then lots of conversations in their apartment. They used to invite us in once a week to see the original Mission Mission Impossible, which was a television show, not a movie. And uh, and so we would come and watch that, and then hang around and eat popcorn and talk. Um, a key moment in that time was they invited me uh, to join them uh, to hear um, his wife, the chaplain's wife, her name is Karen, uh, to um, give her testimony at a church. And then we'd go out to dinner. And they happened to ask me on Sunday night. And I won't go into the details, but the school, the school food was not that great. But Sunday was the worst because it was the leftovers of the not so great food from the previous week. Uh, so an invitation out to dinner, I, I would have gone anywhere to do anything in order to go out to dinner on a Sunday night. But I heard her testimony, which was a radical conversion testimony. I'd never heard anything like it before in my life. I always assumed she was so nice and obviously faithful that she'd sort of been a Sunday school teacher all her life. And without going into the details, she had a dramatic uh, conversion out of real wildness and disbelief, uh, a wild lifestyle. Uh, and that I just never heard of anybody having a change like that in their life. And that caught my attention. And within about two or three months, I, I eventually came to faith. What was that like for you? I mean, was it a, a shock that you kind of rediscovered something you grew up with or what, were, what was your reaction? No, it was much more like, how could I, how could I have missed this? Right. But I don't, but there, I can't think of a single time growing up in the church where we had been called to a, a clear Christ, Christian commitment to Christ. Um, I, I remember being in a junior high youth group and studying the Bible a little bit. And I think the young assistant who led it was hoping for more, but there was no sort of darkness into light understanding of life. Um, it was all, what can I say? It was all encouragement on the assumption that you already had faith. And I had no idea that, what that meant really. So I don't want to dis dismiss my early church years. I mean, I learned some Bible stories. I certainly learned the hymns. I was in the boy choir. Those things all still have power in, in my life. Uh, but I really didn't get the, the basics of the gospel in any way that I could have thought about or communicated. When did you uh, start to think about ministry, vocational ministry? I, I grew up the son of a pediatrician. I loved him. I also loved medicine. So my assumption was I was going to go into pediatrics like, like he had been. So I went off to college with that assumption, became pre-med. Uh, I had just become a Christian halfway through my senior year uh, in boarding school. So I was a brand new Christian. Um, I joined uh, a couple of the fellowships at my university. And then uh, I also got connected to uh, a leader who had been part of the prep school ministry, uh, the camps. We had summer camps. 
Um, and he took me under his wing. He was a seminarian at the seminary next to my university. So I was at Princeton. He was at Princeton Seminary, and he was very alive in the faith. He came out of a campus crusade background um, and just mentored me. Um, and in the midst of that experience of working with him with a youth group at a church and 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 studying with him, you know, sort of study halls together, and then he'd share some Christian reflection for me to be thinking about. Um, I began to feel somewhat drawn to ministry, but it wasn't clear. But then I had a real uh, falling asleep at night, almost Samuel experience of really hearing God speak and telling me that I was going into the ministry. And I can remember sitting straight up in bed and saying to the Lord, no, I'm going to be a doctor. Uh, I happened to be in the same room as my seminary and friend. And uh, so I woke him up and said, do you think God can just speak like that? And he said, well, if it's God, it'll get confirmed. And if it isn't, uh, don't worry about it. But it really was. It, got, it radically got my attention. His name is John Yates. He went on to be the rector of the Falls Church in Virginia for many, many years. He retired just a few years ago. Yates was uh, your... Uh, he, he was the seminarian that was keeping wow. an eye on me. Yeah. Gotcha. So you guys were both at Princeton. Right. He was in the seminary. He'd right. Been, he'd and you're doing pre-med. Yeah. And, and so by the end of sophomore year, I decided to drop out of pre-med and... and to, I went, became an English major. And that was partially because um, I loved English and partially because there was no point in staying in the pre-med program if I wasn't going to go into medicine. Um, so I took some, uh, took one or two religion courses. Probably the best decision I made was I took Greek my senior year at the seminary. They allowed me to do that. I did, not that I was so great at Greek, but a, a full year of Greek was useful uh going forward for me so you really you decided instead of doing med school you wanted to to make the big money yeah, yeah and you're and like i gotta ministry. get into ministry yeah, right yeah yeah you don't want to you don't want to be scraping yeah, it didn't didn't work out so well in terms of the money but that's okay <laughs> <laughs> so you i mean when when yates john yates was at uh princeton i know today princeton seminary is pretty liberal right? yeah it's, it, it's was, gone away it, it was a, it was a mixed bag then hmm. Uh, but there was a professor there named Bruce Metzger who yeah. was a solid, oh, yeah. solid believer. And that was true of several other that. So it was a seminary that became more liberal because we're talking back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Right. It still had a, a pretty strong orthodox uh, base there. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, and John, having already been through a lot of Campus Crusade, training a lot of his own reading, was able to discern wheat and chaff pretty easily. So this was a Princeton Seminary. Did you end up going to Princeton Seminary? No, I ended up being called to be on field staff for the prep school ministry, which is called The Focus. Oh, okay. Wow. And I worked for the guy who founded it, Peter Moore. Um, and um, uh, by that time, I, I had met my wife and we'd married. She'd come to faith her senior year and her boarding school through the same ministry. And we actually got married while we were still in college. It's a long story, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> Love at first so sight, it, it, you slept her I, off yeah, her feet, all yeah. that stuff, yeah. Uh, no, I just, I just moved quickly enough that she didn't have 
anytime to realize what she was getting into. That's that's how you got to do it. It was my that's only hope. It was it. my yeah. only hope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, she'd been thoroughly converted. She was reached by some s- seminarians uh, near her school in Philadelphia at Westminster Seminary. Um, oh wow! And they were part of this part of the focus ministry too. Um, they went on to be very involved with Francis Schaeffer's ministry yeah. and they founded the American library up in the Boston area. No way. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Dick and Marty Kyes, Richard Kyes. Were yeah. you a uh, Episcopal this whole time? I know when, when in college I was part of the chapel fellowship at Princeton, which was its own thing. And also for some time, part of the, the evangelical fellowship that was there. Uh, and then, um, and then when I went on focus staff, we attended uh, a Baptist church in New Haven where we were living uh, from time to time. And then we also attended a small Episcopal church where my boss went. Uh, so we weren't really rooted. I was away a lot on weekends visiting fellowships and things like that mm. throughout New England. Um, my wife was a Presbyterian background. Uh, we didn't really land back in the Episcopal Church until I, until I went to seminary. We went to Gordon-Commonwealth Seminary up in Boston. And um, we thought we'd church shop. We'd try out different denominations because Gordon-Commonwealth is um, uh, evangelical, but uh, interdenominational. So we thought we'd try a little of that. But the first Sunday we got there, we went to the Episcopal Church just because it, we knew we knew of some people there, and they tackled us, and we never went anywhere else. Uh, so uh, one was Elizabeth Elliot, uh, who, uh, then Elizabeth Elliot uh, Gren, uh, and her brother Tom Howard, um, and uh, the assistant Ted Schroeder, who'd been an assistant to John Stott, and and the rector Jim Hampson. Who's in Tallahassee now? It was fun because he was one of my priests for a while. As was Ted Schroeder, who's down here too. But um, uh, Jim had just come to faith through Elizabeth Elliot and her husband. Even though he'd been an Episcopal rector for a while, he really didn't get the gospel. And in the midst of her second husband, Addison Leeds, who was at Gordon Campbell dying, um, they shared the gospel with Jim, who was taking care of him, and he really turned his world upside down. So he was a, a live, uh, new, excited believer, even though he'd been through seminary and been ordained and all of that. So these the kind of things happen he in, the, a, in he, mainline churches back in the, yeah, back, in the, back, in the back in the 70s. We, we knew her brother, Tom, and his wife, Loveless, better than we knew her, but we saw her and a what, lot. What was she doing? She, was she, just she was, she was uh, at that point, she was uh, uh, teaching at Gordon-Conwell as, I think, an adjunct position. Oh, okay, I don't think gotcha. she was on faculty. Wow. That's and writing and, um, and raising her daughter. And, so you're telling yeah. me that you could have been SBC president instead of bishop of the ACNA. Like you could have been. I, I'm so very you never grateful. Know. You don't. And I think, <laughs> and I think the important part is that most of us end up in denominations for not necessarily theological reasons sometimes, but I think there's a lot of times where it's just the, path the Lord lays out of relationships and and something of your personal history. Um, 
the big question for us was as the Episcopal Church began to became more and more liberal was whether we stay in or not. And that was part of what we were talking about not so long ago. So this is a, this was a trajectory that you saw early on. Well, in the, in the early seventies, both when I was working for focus and then later went to Gordon Connell. And then I ended up going to Virginia seminary, which at that point was a, not unlike Princeton seminary, which is that it was a mixture of Orthodox and liberals. Um, uh, at that point, there was real hope that the Episcopal Church and a lot of mainline churches would would turn around. That mm. if you brought in a element of of renewal and reform, that things could turn. And in the Episcopal Church, we almost made it. I mean, if you had counted noses of the people who were in really alive in sort of Bible preaching churches, uh, we probably got to the forty or forty five percent of the attending population of the Episcopal Church, but we never got to the point where we had sufficient uh, clout that we could stop the sort of liberal advance, if you will. Did it begin uh, mostly in the academies? Or? No, that's a, yeah. I think that's accurate. I think as I look back at it, what happened is that a lot of men, uh, Episcopal Church didn't have ordained women until the 1970s. A lot of men went to World War II where soldiers are involved in military or one way or another uh, and came back having come to faith, sort of battlefield faith, real faith. Hmm. Uh, at the same time that the professors they were coming back to had come out the sort of liberal edge of neo-Orthodoxy. I mean, there was a conservative element of that as well, but they came out, it came to professors more likely to be following Tillich than Bart. And, yeah. and the result of that is they never really got solidly grounded. Um, and I think that's true. That was true in Methodism and Presbyterianism as well as in the Episcopal yeah. Church. Uh, and so it's not that they didn't have strong personal faith, but they were not trained uh, in, a, in a, what can I say, to have confidence in the, in the authority of the scriptures. And I think that was a, a real problem. Um, I mean, it's the heart of the problem. And that was something that you started to see effects of. Sure, and it just got, and as the culture became more secular, and you had a you had a, a wedding of the mainline churches to the culture. They uh -huh. were used to having respect and had a voice in the culture. They were likely to be going along with wherever the culture was going, rather than realizing that there are times when you have to say, "Yeah, the culture is off base here." I mean, every culture has Christian elements uh, and uh, secular elements. That's not new. Um, it was just that the balance was tilting. It, it had tilted before for different reasons in American history, and that's why you had the Great, the great Awakenings, you mm -hmm. know, that kind of thing. It's not like there was never a push toward secularism. There's always been one, just because there's one in human nature. I do want to come, come back because I'm, I'm curious how you, um, where you see traces of that today. You know, I mean, do you see, like, how do you keep guard against, you know, you had some people who were trying to stay in the Episcopal Church yeah. to reform it and it, to varying degrees of, 
of working until it finally, there was a split. You talked with the Methodists, Presbyterians. Um, How do you avoid the ACNA from going down the same path or how would a PCA minister? Yeah. So let let me tackle the, the first question first, which is what would I say to people still in the Episcopal church? Um, I I realized back in about 2003 that the study I'd had at Gordon Connell in 1 Corinthians with a New Testament scholar named Gordon Fee was yeah. actually out of the Assemblies of God. Uh, we did an in-depth, you know, uh, exegetical study of 1 Corinthians. And what Paul is arguing for in 1 Corinthians 5, which is basically they had an immoral uh, relationship going on there where a man was sleeping with his father's wife, which I think most commentators would mean, would agree that he was, uh, he had, uh, was in a relationship, maybe even married relationship with his uh, father's widow. His, yeah. his stepmother, not his mother, his, his stepmother. Um, and the Corinthians were boasting of the freedom they had uh, in those relationships rather than recognizing that this would be totally unacceptable in um, in Jewish understanding of incest laws. Um, and Paul comes down hard on them extremely hard and and basically says uh this is bad leaven if you allow for sexual immorality uh to be a public thing within your congregation to be accepted there's a there's a contagious effect or a leavening effect uh and that that will move the congregation toward the toward immorality or toward uh, misunderstanding the nature of marriage, um, and I think that's I think that sort of pagan influence is has always been there. I mean, I go back to the golden calf. You know, the it, it wasn't that the Israelites had no other competing theologies as they were in the wilderness, and I make the case that. Uh, whenever you're dealing with heresy uh, and cultural influence on the church, there's almost invariably a sexual immorality attached to it. They go hand in hand. I can remember when things were blowing up in the Episcopal Church and people said, well, why does it have to be about sex? And my reaction is it's almost always about sex mm-hmm. when it comes to the gospel and paganism. It's you know, Sex is a root of uh, uh, who we are as, as people. We have sexual desires. We're built, those are built in. They're part of what has been corrupted like everything else, you know, in terms of our desires. And we're always looking for ways to justify behavior that's outside God's purposes for, for sex and marriage. It's not new territory. Um, I mean, you had homosexuals in the church in Corinth, and Paul addresses. Um, it used to be like that, but you can't live like that anymore. Is his response? So, uh, so in answer to your question, I think we're in the same dance that first Jews and then and then Christians have been in forever, which is 
there's always paganism around the corner, uh, around the edges, and it's always uh, it's always the enemy's desire to have it infiltrate the church, and the church always has to take a step back and and realize that that's what's going on. There are other things within paganism um, as well. Uh, I just taught this to a confirmation class. I did a list of pagan values versus Christian values, and and uh, you know, materialism is high on a pagan paganism. It's always been the case. The idea that you can have your own belief comes out of um, the idea that there are many gods and you can be following different gods and that's okay. I mean, that sort of pluralism really comes out of paganism. Um, we don't see it that way. We, we have different language for it now. But paganism has always been pluralistic in terms of in, when it comes to deity. And unlike uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's only one God, that, that battle has always been there. So I'm, I'm not telling you anything new, except to say, I think sometimes we're surprised at this back and forth. And when in reality, we should say it's always been the case. Now, there have been times in American history where the Christian values are the primary cultural values and the pagan values are um, less evident, um, but they've always been there. I mean, um, another pagan value, which is at the heart of our hearts is greed, you know, success, greed, economic, uh, success, riches, that that's part of, that's all part of the pagan picture too. That's celebrated in a lot of cultures. We just, um, we shouldn't be surprised by it. It's a helpful uh, perspective. It's a helpful perspective to hear because, I mean, you've seen fads come and go. You've sure. seen movements come and go. Sure. And you can kind of see patterns, I'd imagine, in your years of experience. Yep. And uh, I'm trying, you know, I really want to delve down th this road, but, <laughs> but, but I also want to hear a little bit about your early years in ministry. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, Sure. Uh, so when I got out of Virginia Seminary, their second seminary, we'd had a daughter in each seminary. So we had two young daughters. Um, and uh, I was called first to be what's called a curate, uh, sort of internship, when I was still a deacon to a church in Connecticut, which had been my home territory uh, in New London, Connecticut. I was there for a year, sort of learning some of the ropes, uh, opportunity to preach and that kind of thing. Uh, it was not a very alive congregation, but some good people. The priest, I would say, was uh, not in any sense an evangelical. He didn't understand a lot of what I was saying, but I think he had a root creedal faith. I don't doubt that. Um, but then I was called back to the church I'd been serving when I was at Virginia Seminary, uh, when I was a seminarian at Truro Church, T-R-U-R-O Church in Fairfax, Virginia. The man who was the rector then was the man who had been my prep school chaplain. Uh, it's a small world. Uh, yeah. So his name was John Howe. He had taken that church while I, just before I got to seminary. So he invited me along to be a seminarian. So I did that for two years, went to Connecticut for a year, and then we came back to Truro, where we were there for about nine years. And it, Truro became um, a major hub church for the charismatic renewal that was taking place in the Episcopal church. But John and Karen, his wife, having come out of 
university um, and sort of the evangelical world, while they embrace the work of the spirit in lots of ways, healing and others, um, it was within a bit, they were always wrestling with how, how does this fit with the scriptures? So they were not led off into some of the charismatic craziness. And so strong emphasis on spiritual gifts and healing, um, but also strong em emphasis on small group Bible study, on missions. Half the budget eventually got to the point where it was going out to missions. I mean, they had a lot of other um, values and the congregation had a lot of other values that really led to dramatic renewal and, and excitement. Um, so it was a great foundational experience, particularly the assistant with the young kids uh, where we were not in charge of everything. We were just doing our part. So I had various roles. I, I began doing youth ministry there. I later moved into children's ministry. Uh, I later led the small groups. Uh, and uh, there were other clergy on the staff as well. It was it, We grew from about 600 on a Sunday to about 1,500 during the nine years I was there, which sounded dramatic, and we felt, you know, obviously excited about it. Later on, I realized that we were actually behind the demographic growth of Fairfax County. Really? <laughs> it was, it was so just, it was just a, a this outside of D.C. It was just, yeah, just booming. It was booming. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean God wasn't doing great things among us, but it, it, it was interesting to realize we were tracking with the demographic growth of the area. And then you, uh, when did you become a rector yourself? So I got called down to a church in Jacksonville, Florida. The call came through the fact that somebody from this area had been the music, one of the music ministers at Truro and put my name in. And I got called, I got uh, interviewed for a church and I was runner up, but because I'd met the, the bishop here, he put me into another process and I was called to a church called Redeemer in Jacksonville. Um, and we got here, uh, in 88. Wow. Uh, so yeah. How old were you? Uh, when I became the rector, uh, I was 37. 37 years old. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. No. Wow. So, and I mean, then, so we were in that church with me as rector until I became bishop. So that, that was from 1988 to 2010. Now, when you were a rector, you were pastoring and you were essentially, I guess, maybe in non-denominational parts. Yeah. You were the senior pastor yeah, there. That's right. And, uh, you were there, you were working, and all through this, the Episcopal Church is going through changes? Yeah, radical changes. And uh, over time. Um, and there were strong resistance movements, if you want to call it that, from the more orthodox side of things throughout that time. Uh, conferences and uh, Marsha, my wife, spoke at several of them. Uh, of people saying, no, we're going to stay faithful. We're going to hold the line. Um, I'd say there were two primary battles. One was easier to describe than the other. Um, the, the heart battle was a continual uh, decline 
uh, in parts of the church over the authority of the scriptures and over the over the lordship of Christ and over the uniqueness of the gospel. It, so a large part of the church is becoming universalistic. Mm. Um, and that was that was really at the heart of the problem. The 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 symptom of that was a greater and greater acceptance of homosexual behavior. Um, and eventually the the last straw was the calling of a gay bishop in New Hampshire. Uh, not that there weren't already gay priests, but the difference is that a gay bishop is ordained for the whole church, not just for his own congregation or his own diocese. Um, and, and we knew as we headed into that, this was 2003, a man named Gene Robinson, that if he were confirmed by the rest of the Episcopal Church, because it was a church-wide confirmation process, um, that that would be the end of hopes for renewal. Uh, partially because we knew it would cut us off from the vast majority of Anglicans around the world. Um, who so did not the, hold to that. The, I mean. who, who were solidly biblical. Yeah. So what had happened in the 18th, 1800s and early 1900s is that as the British Empire expanded, they would send out missionaries that went alongside them, sometimes went ahead of them, um, who by and large were all uh, uh, solidly Orthodox, mostly evangelicals. There's some Anglo-Catholics who would be more traditional in terms of, or more formal in terms of worship and things like that. But they were all solidly biblical and creedal Christians. And they would go out and they bring the gospel to Africa or Asia, wherever the empire was landing, sometimes ahead of the empire. Um, and, and I might add to the U S in the, in the 1700s, before we were a nation, you had the Wesleyan revival going on in England. Uh, and that's, it's important to remember that that was an Anglican movement and an Anglican revival. And that, the Wesleys were Anglican priests until their death. They never left the Church of England. Um, but there were lots of missionaries coming to the States as well. So as the gospel went into those countries, it, it, it became more indigenous in terms of the leadership over time, and but solidly biblical. There, were, there weren't liberal movements of any consequence in in uh, the global south or Asia or Latin America. Um, and so in 2003, when the Episcopal Church stepped off that particular cliff in terms of that consecration of that bishop, all the other churches began to cut off relationships uh, with the Episcopal Church. Up until that time, we had what was called the Anglican Communion, still has that name, but to understand it, is to understand that yes, all those churches originally came out of England. As they, as their nations stopped being colonies, those churches became um, uh, independent, but, but related to each other. And we were a communion in the sense that we shared common worship, common history, recognized one another's ordinations. So if I were a priest in the U.S., I could serve as a priest in England or in Uganda or whatever. There was no, uh, no vetting going on you we recognized 
the validity of each other's ministries. But when that decision was made, all of a sudden we were thrown into a situation where the rest of the global church had to say, we can't recognize the Episcopal church or in particularly this consecration of this particular bishop, but the general thrust of it was we have to cut off relationship. And we've been in that situation ever since. In the midst of that, many of us felt compelled rather than losing our connection to the overseas missions and uh, and among ourselves here, um, we then were adopted by overseas diocese. So while I may not look Ugandan, for a number of years, I was a Ugandan priest. And then in 2008, um, in a gathering called the Global Anglican Futures Conference in Jerusalem, uh, bishops uh, and leaders from around the world who are resisting the, li- the liberal direction of the church in the U.S. And I might add the church in Canada and also in Australia, similar things were happening there, but particularly Canada and the U.S. Um, it's they always said, Canada. They, uh, it's said, always Canada. Yeah, they, they, said, um, they said we needed to start an Anglican uh, church here that was recognizable to most of the, the other Anglicans. So that's when BACNA, the Anglican Church in North America, was was seated, uh, and then it actually t- started in 2009. And then we began to ordain bishops, and I was one of the first waves of that of those bishops. So, I mean, that's so much happening. It's a lot happening. You it know, was painful. Do you even remember your 40s and 50s? <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember pieces of them. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say that... Uh, so you said there were already gay priests in the Episcopal Church before there was a gay bishop. Right. Did you guys recognize their ordination? We we didn't have to, or at least most of us didn't have to, because they weren't in our diocese. We weren't interacting with them. Uh, it was it was not oh, okay. in the, it was not in every place by any means. We and in Florida uh, and in the South in general were in more conservative dioceses, but we knew trouble was coming. Yeah. We just. Um, we were trying to work out strategies and we were building our relationships during the, that season with overseas churches thinking things could blow up. That, um, that's amazing. That yeah, It's like the, the, the missionaries that went yeah. out mm-hmm. to bring the gospel to those nations, those nations end up becoming the ones who kind of yeah, pull they, America they rescued out. Us. Yeah, they rescue they, us they, and, they, and, they, and they provide a shelter and they're the ones holding on to orthodoxy. Yeah. When the people who brought it a generation before were the ones who taught them orthodoxy. It's yeah, amazing. In, in a way, it reminds me of what happened for my congregation, Redeemer, which is when we were still in the Episcopal Church, there was a Messianic congregation that was forming in Jacksonville. and Like Messianic Jews? Yeah, 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 Messianic Jews. Uh, uh, and we invited them to use our facility because we didn't need it on Friday night or Saturday morning as a rule. And... Uh, and then when it was clear that we were going to lose the ability to use our building and we were going to be homeless, they invited us to join them. So we so we shared space with them for a number of years until we were able to find our own space. Uh, so, in yeah, so in a way, it was a similar thing. We adopted them and then yeah. they adopted us in terms of sharing sharing the facility. So it's it the same kind of thing, you know, the. We, we sent out missionaries to, or, or they, you know, the Brits and the Americans sent uh, missionaries out to the rest of the world and 
and then they ended up adopting us. Did you, uh, I mean, I, I, on a personal level, did you lose friends? I mean, what was it? Did you have friends who were on the other side of the debate? What was that like personally? You know, particularly with ordaining homosexuals or, or you know, obviously yeah, the last well, straw I, being the bishop. I think I, I lost contact with some friends. I, I don't, I, I didn't get into major debates with them because things were happening so fast. Um, we had moments of being unpopular when, when six of us in the diocese of Florida, the Episcopal diocese we were attached to that's based in Jacksonville, uh, realized that we could no longer give through our diocese to the national church. So this is basically around 2003, 2004, uh, particularly 2004, uh, we were sort of the rebels, you know, and, and the new bishop that we had just couldn't understand why we weren't just sort of holding the line, stay orthodox, but don't, don't mess up with the giving. We felt in good conscience. We couldn't support Mm. the, the, national episcopal church because they were condoning all of this so we were that that was a painful moment uh we weren't all popular at that moment but we felt pretty strongly going back to the first corinthians 5 that if you don't take solid clear disciplinary action and action to distance yourself from 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 where things were going that you get invariably you would end up justifying uh a reason to uh go along with it or or enable it i mean that's that's the thing i think people miss which is it's not it's paul's teaching in first corinthians is not so much to um be negative to the sexual stuff that was going on he was negative toward it but what he saw and that we forget is that given our fallen human nature, we're susceptible to go along with anything that's not scriptural. We can, we can create our own excuses. Uh, we are, you know, part of the fall is that we are excuse making creatures. Uh, see it in Adam and Eve at the very beginning, they each had an excuse as to why they ate the forbidden fruit. It was a, it was a wound you gave me, you know, or no, it was, it was a snake. I mean, oh, okay. You, you mean it wasn't you? <laughs> I mean, but that's just our nature, isn't it? So it's we have to be aware that when we're in the midst of the battles, it's not we're not just fighting to get other people to the right place. We're we're actually in need to make make difficult decisions because we are easily tempted as people, and I think that's what's happening in a lot of situations in the. Uh, in the mainline churches, but even some of the evangelical churches, is they don't realize their susceptibility to get led astray, which is high. Now, you're a rector at the time, and then you were saying that when the split happened, so th- there's tension in the Episcopal Church over ordaining gay bishops, gay yeah. priests, and then you're sort of thrust into this new organization we didn't know what we were going to do exactly except that we'd already been adopted overseas because we're anglicans you you don't do ministry without the oversight of a bishop even if he's in uganda and uh 
Um, and so we never, we never left being under bishops because uh, that's a high value to us, but we wanted to be under Orthodox, Orthodox bishops. But then when the Orthodox bishops turned around and said, you need to form your own entity, we can't keep sort of keeping you accountable from across an ocean. And that was fair enough. And so how did you get the uh, short straw and become bishop? <laughs> well, when that group of six first left, uh, we met monthly and sometimes more often than that. It included my successor, Alex Farmer, who's about to be consecrated the next bishop. He was one of them. He was early early on in his thirties when, and he'd just become a rector, but he, he saw where we needed to go. And, um, the bottom line, I guess, is that I was leading the group more than I was realizing. I saw it as, as sort of a band of brothers. I was seeing a Christian counselor at the time and she said, I think you're the leader of this group. I said, no, we're all kind of in it together. She said, I want you to go to the group and ask them on my behalf, are you the leader? And I said, really? She said, yeah, I think it'd be useful. I thought, okay. So I went one time and I said, my counselor thinks I'm the leader of this group. And the basic reaction was, duh, um, which was kind of a surprise <laughs> to me. So They hired the counselor to say that. that. Like, well, <laughs> the other funny part of it is that's, that of the six, I think four of us were seen or uh, not either because of the church turmoil or because of our own marriages or lives that needed. So she made all this happen. She, she, She's she, the mastermind. Yeah, she, was, yeah. uh, she was a brilliant uh, Christian counselor. Uh, very, very helpful. Very wise. And um, eh, sadly gone on to be with the Lord. But um, and, and, and victoriously too. Um, but uh, so then when it came time to get a bishop for this group in this area, as it was growing, we had about 22 congregations. Um, there was a movement to just promote, put my name for it. And I, I really didn't like that idea at all. I said, no, I want us to take the time to write canons first for the diocese. So we have operating an operating system in place. And I want us to have a real election and another, uh, key leader put his name forward as well uh, at my encouragement, others' encouragement, so that it was a real choice. And and then we had the election and obviously I was elected. Uh, he later became a bishop. So um, uh, it was not something I ever wanted to do. I'll be honest with you. I, I, uh, I had no desire back in the Episcopal Church days when people wanted to put my name in in various places, I consistently said no. I just didn't. I enjoyed being a pastor. I enjoyed being over a group of people. I enjoyed, if enjoyed, I just felt right about it. It's probably a better word um, about you know teaching through the scriptures over from the same pulpit over a period of time. All the things you can't do as a bishop, um, but somebody needs to be a bishop and. I, I believe in bishops. I will tell you a funny story. Um, when I was a rector, I had an assistant who got into an affair that I didn't know about. And a friend of mine who found out about it, who was in another church, told me that, that she was certain that my priest, my assistant was having an affair and gave me the information. 
And I went to my bishop saying, what do I do? And he said, don't do anything. Let me handle it, um, which he did beautifully. And he came into the congregation and the priest resigned and all, you know, all sorts of things. But what I realized um, was that if I had tried to handle it internally, that I would have immediately split the congregation into two or three groups. One would have been, let's give him another chance. Another would have been, let's kill him, or at least fire him. And in the third group, that was would have been confused to know, I, I don't know what we should do. By having the bishop come in and simply announcing what was happening, they could be mad at him, but they, but they were not mad at me. And I, I joke about it, but it's partially true that that was sort of the first time I actually believed in bishops. Now you're uh, the one everyone gets mad yeah, at. Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> but I, but I've been through it on the other side too. Yeah. And I do think there's something to be said to have having an authority outside the life of a congregation, uh, who can speak into the conflicts that in, inevitably arise. Um, and I, I think it's part of, uh, if you will, apostolic ministry. So um, I've been teaching for years now the fact that I don't think we entirely understand the New Testament epistles, uh, at least from one point of view, which is they were battlefield communiques. They were, they, it was Paul or the others writing into conflict with authority speaking words that could resolve the conflicts if they would be followed. Um, and I think that, I don't think bishops are apostles in quite the same sense that uh, any of the original apostles, but there is an apostolic oversight of the larger picture that can speak into conflict in a way that individual pastors of individual congregations don't, have the authority to do, they're just going to get shredded. And I've seen that happen over and over again. So there've been many, um, many things about life as a bishop I won't miss. I won't miss doing the discipline, but having, having a mechanism for church discipline, particularly of clergy, but not always just clergy, where it doesn't put the senior pastor on the spot. And of course, if the senior pastor is the problem, you need somebody from the outside to come in and say, this is how this is going to go. And people get mad at him, but at least they're unified and that they're all mad at the same person. Uh, but they, but it doesn't shred the congregation. And I guess, uh, especially if he's a young guy, yeah. having an older guy who has, yeah. who can come in and yeah. help him. It's, it's hard to have the kind of, uh, gravitas that you yeah. need if you're, you know, 35 right. and trying to yeah. discipline a guy who's 20 years older than you. Right. But, I mean, just let's take COVID, for example, because yeah. it's still all in our minds. When it was hitting and the, we, you know, we were heading to masks and social distancing and do we shut down the congregations? The bishops met together and agreed that for the initial period of time, we would shut down the congregations. Of course, in the early days of COVID, we didn't quite know what we were dealing with and, and lives were at stake. But as it went on, I met with my deans, the regional leaders of the diocese. And I listened to, you know, what do we have mandates for mass? And I mean, all the questions that were bouncing all over the place. And I said, you know, do you want to handle it in your own congregations or what? How do you think this should go? And their response was, no, you need to decide. 
And, and, and because if we try to fight that out congregation by congregation, it's going to be devastating. Let's have, you play the bad cop. And I said, okay. And that, that, I felt that was what you're there for. You're the bishop. Yeah. I mean, it's not what I wanted to do. And I can, I can assure you that no one called it a hundred percent right. Yeah. Um, but we were all doing our best. Um, but there was a place for somebody to speak into the larger church and say, we're going to tackle it this way. And by and large, we were in enough touch with each other as bishops that while we didn't do it exactly the same in every place, and of course, COVID hit different places at different strengths, uh, the general approach uh, worked. I mean, we, we the congregation survived. So did you, with, I guess you could talk about COVID, but really even just with the split, were you in coordination with the other bishops who were also, you know, rebelling with you? Like, do you guys yeah, have like yeah, a poker we game no, that you go to? Yeah, I mean, most of us, most of us weren't bishops at that point. Most oh, of okay. us were, but most of us had landed under other bishops. In our area, we made a strategic decision. Some places, uh, people said, we'll all go under the same country. So oh, in okay. some places, they all went under Uganda or Kenya or Nigeria. In yeah. um, Northeast Florida, where we were, we looked at all those options and we said, why don't we all go to different places? Uh, so two or three went to Uganda, two or three went to Nigeria, you know, Kenya, uh, elsewhere, Brazil. Um, and the reason we did that is we assumed at some time we would re-emerge. But what a great thing to be building relationships internationally along the yeah, way and bringing those, yeah. bringing those into our life together. And that's been, that's been wonderful. I mean, you, you have like a camaraderie with the other, well, first of all, did any of the Episcopal bishops leave or was it just? No, several, several of the Episcopal bishops leave the, the left, the, the diocese of Pittsburgh left with their bishop, Robert Duncan, who, who became the archbishop, the first archbishop of this movement, uh, a bishop in Quincy left. Um, the uh, eventually, over time, the diocese of South Carolina left, which is actually just part of South Carolina. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. But basically, uh, but some, uh, so, so, and, effort, and then yeah. there were bishops who left without the diocese in hand. But by and large, uh, it it wasn't that uh, the diocese of Fort Worth left. Um, that, that was a major, major diocese. And I'm sure I'm forgetting two or three others, but the point is that, you know, there were, I think 40 or 50 Episcopal dioceses, and there was a handful that left as dioceses. What was it like talking to your wife or your family about during, I mean, this, that's some crazy upheaval. I mean, probably <laughs> did you lose your building? Did you like, we lost it. We lost our building. What was it like? It was, um, well, this is going to sound trite and it wasn't trite by any means, but we all say the church is the people, not the building. And the quick way to test the thesis is lose the building. See if you still have the people. Um, and we tried to, as a congregation to have the Archbishop of Canterbury step in uh, and allow us to be under one of the more orthodox bishops still in the Episcopal Church. And that agreement was signed eventually. It took, year, it took a, over a year to get it sorted out. And then 
our local bishop ended up backing out of it a day later. Um, I don't know if it was a question of losing us as a congregation or just the principle of it or whatever, but then we were, um, then, then at that point, it was inevitable that we were going to lose the building. Um, and I don't want to make light of losing the buildings. I mean, my, my parents are buried by that church. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it didn't have, it wasn't in my, you know, my daughter was married there and, you know, my son was baptized there. I mean, it, it had a lot of value emotional value for us. But at some point you have to say the truth matters more than those things. That's what it comes down to. Um, but it was, it was definitely painful. Uh, we were grateful for the Messianic congregation adopting us. That solved the, where are we going to meet problem. Um, but it wasn't an ideal space. It was a lot better than we would have been able to afford on our own. Um, and it was, it was, uh, a joy to be connected to that congregation. Did your congregation grow closer? Did you feel yes, like there was a rallying? Yes, we, we were surprised. The the bishop, the Episcopal bishop, assumed that we might be taking 40 or 50% of the congregation with us and that he'd have, the rest would stay and, you know, he'd have, but all but about four people left with us. <laughs> so, but we also had an advantage that the Methodists right now don't have. Um. And it's also true for those leaving the, the Presbyterian Church. We were still back in the early 2000s when all this was happening. And there was still, within the culture, a general sense that, that people were not in favor of gay marriage. Uh, there were, it was a new thing. People didn't understand it. You didn't have all of the hardcore uh, press from the gay rights side it was had it had begun but it hadn't it hadn't affected as much of the culture um so it was so people were readier to say yeah that's a bad sign of where things are it's a biblical issue it's not it's not what what can i say i don't think we are ever homophobic i never saw it anyway um Long story short, one of my brothers was gay. Um, so it wasn't that we were trying to diss anybody who was struggling with those kind of issues. We just didn't think it was a biblical, acceptable lifestyle um, that we could. It, there's just too much scripture saying the contrary. Um, so you can feel sorry for the people who are struggling. That's different than saying they have a right to redefine marriage. So uh, it was easier in the early 2000s. So for the groups leaving now, it's much harder. Mm. It's much harder to make a case on, on a sexuality issue. Uh, um, it's much harder and much more likely that their kids will simply not understand why they'd want to leave. Uh, it's just, it sort of tears families up more than it, than it did in our time. So you still had a little bit of cultural capital when you left that people were like, well, that makes sense. Whereas now today it'd be like, you guys are bigoted. We're, we, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the argument that was being made in the Episcopal church and back in those days was, uh, 
we understand that you don't agree with us and 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 there's room in the church to have both opinions that's not the case anymore now that that is the case is you must uh toe the uh more progressive line in fact in the recent election of a new bishop for the diocese of florida which was our original diocese he was on the more conservative side of things you i wouldn't I don't want to label them too much, but when some of those roots became known, there was a questioning of the validity of the election itself, mm. and and he's just withdrawn, having been elected. Sounds like if you guys didn't leave, you would have been kicked out. Well, eventually, you know? yeah, I mean, absolutely, it- and that and that was true. But we, I, th- I think we tried to leave as graciously as possible. Um, in my area, uh, we were the only church that got sued. Really? And the, and the only reason, and, be, and we're willing to to live out the suit for the sake of the other congregations. But um, the only reason we even allowed that was because we had appealed to Canterbury, to uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to um, sort out the situation. Um or we would have just walked away. What were you sued for? Sued for trespassing. Oh, because they didn't want you in the building. And right. <laughs> unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I mean, it's, in some ways, I feel like you're like a like a war veteran. You know, you're telling <laughs> war stories. You know. Yeah, I know. It was. You asked me how it was. It was hard. It's very hard. Um, I don't like conflict. Uh. Uh. There were relationships that were under stress. It it was stressful for the congregation to know if they were going to have a home or not. Um, it was uh, it was hard to to be thinking of anything else until it got resolved, and it took a couple of years for it to get resolved. So we were in that tension. So I don't want to diminish the, the spiritual warfare and the and the. Uh, and the difficulty, it was very hard. Um, again, though, I was grateful to sort of think back to my training at Gordon Conwell with Gordon Fee and say, yeah, but if you don't do this, you're going to, you're going to have a, an infection spread in the body of Christ that you're responsible to pastor. And that to me was, um, that to me was the worst out, worst possible outcome. How do you? Uh, I mean, if this is something perennially that's going to pop up, how do you? You know, as a bishop, what were some ways that you looked back on what happened at Episcopal Church and said, "We're going to do things differently with the ACNA." Here, here, here's where the things that we need to be on the lookout for, or even what are some things you see on the horizon that concern you? Well. We have to be as clear as we can about what we're for and what we're against. Uh, And we're still trying to get clearer on that message. So on the, uh, going back to the issue of of sexuality, um, we're not out to get people who are struggling with sexual attractions and, and, and treating treating homosexuals sex any differently than we treat other sex outside of marriage. The, the, the scriptures are 
uh, clear uh, that sexual relationships are to be within male female marriage, but there are but we can't we can't treat uh, an active gay person differently than we would treat uh, an active uh, sexually active like person in a in a male female relationship. So I, I think we have to be very clear that we're protecting God's view within marriage uh, of sex within marriage. And, and it's good. It's good for the people. It's good for family. It's good for the church and it's good for the culture. And anything that diminishes that is going to do significant damage. Um, so we got to be, we have to be clear about that. We're not, this is not an anti-gay crusade. Paul doesn't make many distinctions between, um, or many significant distinctions uh, about sex in that sense. Um, so I think that we have to get clearer and clearer that that's what we're saying. I think we have to be compassionate um, because anybody coming into life in Christ is coming out of sin. Right. So they're presenting sin maybe that they've been promiscuous actually, but the presenting sin could be an addiction or pride or, I mean, there are a million other things that we need to be discipling about. So I, I'd say that's, I think that's real important going forward that we're, we're all sinners. We've just picked different varieties of it. I think um, some of Tim, Tim Keller's stuff on ideology is really helpful. We all choose our idols. They just, some are more acceptable than others in the life of the culture and the life of the church, but we're all, we're, we're all led astray by various idols. What about on a doctrinal level? I mean, you know, you, you spoke about how there, there was sort of a, it was very gradual yeah. kind of shifts in errancy, like yeah. authority of scripture, all that stuff. And then the dam bursts. Yeah. I think we used to use the word, the perspicacity of scripture that, that we need to operate on the assumption that the scriptures come to us uh, in a universal sense that they can speak into any culture. That yes, they're written in the midst of various cultures, be it Babylonian or or Greco-Roman or or the paganism or Egyptian, but that we believe that God has spoken his word to all cultures at all times. And that doesn't mean we don't have hard work to figure out how to apply them, but the truth is there and we can wrestle it down. I think the Anglican perspective, which got lost in the main line in the midst of this discussion, is that uh, in the 39 articles, one of the articles argues that you should not interpret one scripture in conflict with another. That's a radically important principle, but I think it's something that the mainline does all the time. You know, love is more important than this. And more. No, that's, that's contrary to the way we should be trying to integrate and understand the scriptures as an integral uh, 
revelation from the Lord. So I think that's always a, a case. I think um, I think that the the Old Testament r- principle of trust not princes is a real important principle for where we are right now, which is we're so used to being in, in, in a Christendom world, uh, at least my generation is, and then seeing that sort of fall apart that we want to go back and fix everything politically. Uh, and the fact is that we we can't assume that our primary rescuers are going to be politicians or political process. I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved. I'm not saying we shouldn't be uh, trying to uh, have Christian values in in the legal sense. I'm not saying that. I am saying that if our hope is in that happening, we're going to be in, in continual trouble. That's a good word, especially if timely yeah. now. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. Well, it's, it's been, uh, it's, it's, it's always been true. It's just a little more obvious now. So yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, I, I think my danger is to worry too much about the political scene hmm. and forget that if Jesus is risen Lord, he's the active King of Kings. Yeah. Very important to remember. Very important. <laughs> but it's to very easy to forget. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just hearing these stories, I, I want to maybe on a more, you know, we're talking about your trials and tribulations. And I, I think oftentimes, you know, uh, when you hear interviews with people who have been as faithful, you know, mm-hmm. as long as you have, there's, you know, there's a lot of focus on, on the difficulties and, and the endurance. But also, what were the, the things about being a rector and, and shepherding and pastoring people that, that brought you just the most joy? Well, you get to see lives changed right in front of your eyes. And it's not usually dramatically, you know, one moment to the next, although that can be the case. Uh, but to just see people change, that God change their lives over time. I can remember one father who was constantly away on the road, uh, managed a business and he had young children. And it was, it was very difficult for his wife at home. And I can remember challenging him. He was ch- churched, but not, not a solid Christian by any means. Challenging him and say, you may need to change jobs in order to be the father you need to be. And he was so angry at me for a while. Then, then he talked to his wife and realized I might not have been crazy. Uh, <laughs> but in the midst of that, trying to begin to believe that he had a higher calling than being successful in his career, he became a new guy, solid believer, solid biblical Christian, leader of others. I got to see it, you know, I mean, front you know yeah, up front. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, watching people change and repent and, and grow. It's just been dramatic uh, over the years. So that's, I think it's part of the best part. Um, I think the other thing I'd add in general, I'm not just, uh, it's true for Anglicanism, but it's true for where I think we need to be in the culture right now. I think we need to take um, catechism, catechetical instruction much more seriously because we've got a set of 
understanding of the world and the virtues and of prayer and of who the Lord is, that just an, a sermon on a Sunday and a, and even a, a simple Bible study group looking at the scriptures, as important as that is too, they're just not going to get the Christian worldview that they need. So I, I think one of the, one of the tr- cards, one of the tools that the church has uh, played or used in the past of regular training in the catechism uh, so that people understand that being a Christian is to see the world differently than the culture around them. We need some ways of training into that. And that's all, and that's one tool. I also think liturgy is a tool. I think hearts get trained by, by liturgy, by saying the same words uh, every week, not rote, but build them into your mindset uh, is really key. Um, we, you know, we know, we know the power of language. I also think that we are assaulted by media now. Uh, I don't mean the content. I mean, just the, the amount of media. It's everywhere. Yeah. And, and liturgy in, in some sense counteracts that it's to give a quieter place to be listening, uh, and be formed, uh, by, by words that have stood the test of time. I think there's people hungering for that today. Yeah. I mean, even among millennials and yeah. people are gravitating more, they're kind of done with the pop yeah. church and the That's right. smoke, you know. It's not working. I, I just talked to two church planters uh, in the state yesterday uh, who I'm going to be ordaining soon, who came out of a mega church where he was the teaching pastor and she was the worship leader, but they just, they've come in Anglicanism. And I think a lot of it was just a sense of, we just need to be more grounded, more attached to the tradition. Um, and um, and that tradition, I mean, you can see it in various other places. There's a similar movement in, in parts of Presbyterianism, certainly parts of Methodism, mm-hmm. uh, Lutherans uh, are rediscovering it. So I don't, I don't want to make it a, an Anglican thing only. But people don't just get formed by information that there's a patterning uh, to faith that has to get built into. I kind of want to, as we're kind of bringing this to a close, I'm just thinking if you could look back when you were first starting either as an assistant or even your early days as a rector, what would you tell your younger self? That's a great question. Marcia and I use that question a lot. Um, I think the, I think if I had to pick one thing, and this is something I've been wrestling with recently as I'm, you know, retiring as a full-time bishop and moving on, I, I'm, I look back at how much I'm a striver, how much it all depended on me, how hard I had to work, you know, how, how much I had to fix and realize and how poor I was and how inconsistent in prayer or Bible study or, or thoughtfulness. I mean, pick a category. Um, and 
I think looking back, I would tell my younger self, don't pay as much attention to how well you're doing in either the Christian life individually or as you're in your leadership. Look at what the Lord's doing. Because I look back and I think the number of ways the Lord stepped in, rescued, took care of us. I, I remember when I was a new rector, I really wanted to have a missions program. And we had no one who understood missions at all. And and I tried to get some things moving. I, I, I'd come out of a church with a big missionary program. And how could I get that to go? And and I prayed about it. I um, even set it as a goal for a year, which I don't think is a bad thing if it's spirit-directed. But I really didn't know how to do it. And the Lord brought a couple, both children of Baptist ministers, uh, husband and wife. They just walked in one day. They'd never been in a liturgical church. That, and they were just blown away by our life and our and and Dude, what was going on there almost and, had a heart and, attack and, and, in. <laughs> and they came and then somebody at at coffee invited them oh you're in my neighborhood come to our small group and so they came well they couldn't have any children of their own they were radically committed to missions local and and foreign so much so that they spent some of their money to go visit the missionaries they were supporting on the field wow um and so they, you know, they had to be with us for a while, but pretty quickly they said, how can we help you? You know, this is our background. And I just said, find us four or five missions we should be supporting and help us to do it. And they knew all about it. They've been doing it their whole lives. And they radically changed our congregation, but it was the Lord. It wasn't, I mean, I, I, was, I was carrying the torch a little bit. And mm -hmm. I think that's sometimes our role as leaders is to say, here are the values. But then beyond that, if the Lord doesn't step in, it's not going to happen, hmm. no matter how hard you work. I had the same experience with small groups. I got there. I'd been in a church where 60 or 70% of people had been with small group Bible studies. And I was trying to get them moving. And Marcia started a women's Bible study, which was went well. Um, but it just wasn't happening. Hmm. Uh, and then I had three couples, the wives who were already in the women's office, so they come to me and said, we want to start home groups. Can we do that? And I said, sure. And then I gave them everything I knew about it. And that grew to a network of a lot of groups. But they started it. I mean, it wasn't unrelated to what Marsh was doing or, other, or what God was putting in their hearts, but it wasn't all up to me. So I tell my younger self, it's not all up to you. And... The Lord can 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 turn things in new directions in ways that you just can't assume uh, will happen. So, I think going forward, I think the American emphasis on program in churches uh, is slowly getting dismantled. Mm. Uh, People just aren't, their lives aren't as structured as they used to be. They're, they're, they're sometimes carrying more than one job. Um, wives are working. When I got to Redeemer in 1988, more than half of the mothers were not working. Well, that's just not the reality anymore. So you had a volunteer capacity there that is just not available. So letting the Lord raise people up, pointing them, giving them resources to follow their hearts, uh, understanding 
that no one person is ever going to start a program. I did have the advice of a, of a good friend of mine who said, somebody comes to you with a great idea, tell them to go pray and see if they can find somebody else who thinks it's a great idea. And, those, <laughs> and if they, and if they come back together and are both excited about it, then help them. Yeah. But don't, don't spend much time trying to deal with individual great ideas. Yeah. So I, I tell my younger self, the Lord's going to do a lot more than you think, and it's not going to be as much up to you as you thought. That's a good word. <laughs> Man, that is some good stuff. Neil, thank you so much. Uh, you're, for, you're welcome. For sharing that. And, I hope uh, it helps. Yeah, I appreciate uh, the insights you shared and, and just you know your commitment, your faithfulness, the, the hard decisions you had to make. And uh, you know, well-deserved retirement. Although you're you're not really going to be no. you're, you're gonna you're gonna be ministering till till the grave. So <laughs> it's just well, I, I mentioned the church planners that I'm going to go ordain next yeah. week. I, I was writing here, and uh, Marsha, I said, you know, I'm I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know what you know. I'm, I don't think there's going to be as much for me to do. Marsha's response was, I think it's going to feel different, but I think there's going to be plenty to do. And I literally got a phone call that minute from a bishop saying, can you go ordain these two people in Tampa? <laughs> and it was like, I get it. And Marcia said, see? <laughs> a bishop's job is never done. Yeah, you know what, right. though? Maybe uh, during your off time or during the, yeah. you know, post, your post-bishop uh, years, yeah. you can... Uh, you can get that medical degree. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, what I really, what I'm planning to do, the Lord seems to me, seems to be leading, is I've had a coach for the last nine years. I felt yeah. ending. I wanted to encourage my clergy to have coaches. And then I thought, well, it's hypocritical unless you got one. So I got a coach. And now I'm going to get trained to do some more coaching. I'm already coaching one bishop. and, and you, you have a coach uh, from someone in the ACNA? No, he, no. no, actually he's from the outside. Although when I first met him, he was in an ACNA church, but okay. he's been coaching various denominations yeah. around the country for 20 something years. And, uh, uh, and so I'm going to get some more training to see if I can be better at that. Um, and there's some other things that the Archbishop and I are talking about. So I'm not going to be bored. I don't think, but I think it'll be different. Well, coming yeah. soon, Coach <laughs> Bishop Neil Labar. Neil, thank you so much. Oh, appreciate welcome. it. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Make sure you guys uh, subscribe to this podcast. We're going to have more interviews like this. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, That'll Preach Podcast. And we'll be back next week with some more content.